We won again. This is good. But what is best in life? How about... Wrong! I would summon a demon more ferocious than all in hell! Wrong! What is best in life? Crush your enemy, see them driven before you, and they have a lamentation of your women. That is this. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. Howdy, 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 and welcome, folks, to a very special episode of Garage Gamer here. Um, I'm Dave, as usual, with you, and today I have a really special guest. Um, not someone um, from the regular wargaming uh, people I have on, but New York Times best-selling author, Mr. Larry Correa. Larry, thank you for coming on. Uh, my pleasure. So, Larry, for those uh, people who haven't, um, well, <laughs> for, for the people in my audience who haven't been paying attention to how much I've been raving about Monster Hunter International and uh, Dead Six and the Grimoire Chronicles, could you give them a little uh, information on, uh, you know, kind of the stuff you write? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fantasy author. I uh, primarily am known for the Monster Hunter International series. It's an urban fantasy action adventure, uh, kind of X-Files meets the Expendables. Uh, and then I've got the Grimoire Chronicles, which are you know hard magic, spellbound, and warbound. It's a trilogy. It's a 1930s alternate history superheroes, basically magical superheroes. And uh, then I've got my Dead Six military thrillers. I'm working on the third one, third and final one of those right now with Mike Coopery. Uh, and then I also write. Uh, I've written a couple novels and novellas for War Machine uh, for Privateer Press for the War Machine Hordes universe. And uh, so I think I got 13 novels done. Uh, my next thing starting is an epic fantasy series. Uh, Son, of, Son of the Black Sword is the first one's coming in November, and that that's pretty cool. It's the first time I've done epic fantasy, uh, and then I think I've got about two dozen short stories out. So, <laughs> so there's uh, a lot out there. Yeah, I write I write a lot. I've been doing this since 2009. And I, I do about two books a year, is uh, is what I average. So it, it's a fun job. <laughs> yeah, pretty prolific there. Two books a year. Gee whiz. So um, now you mentioned that you had written some War Machine and Hordes. Now I I am a Warhammer fantasy player, so um, I also I do also play a little War Machine. I am terrible at it. I've never I've only played about ten games. I've never won once. My trolls... I am not I am not good. I am I am primarily <laughs> a painter first, um, and I love fluff. But man, I I am you know I am not super good. My win loss ratio is nothing to brag about. <laughs> So would you would you say you are a gamer then as well as a as a as an author? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I I game whenever I have the opportunity. I primarily war. Uh, I do more role playing games and I do war gaming, but uh, I love war gaming. I, I've got tons of minis for systems that I have never even played. <laughs> Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a bit of a problem. I mean, I have a five hundred square foot office and all of it's covered in shelves. I remember seeing you last August at Gen Con, and it was Thursday. Like, it literally had just opened. (laughs) And I saw you at 2 in the afternoon, and you're like, okay, so how much did you guys spend? And you're like... Yeah, I hit the I hit uh, the the miniatures and the cool mini place, and you had like uh, you had the huge box of all. It's like I couldn't resist. I spent uh, I spent a thousand dollars the first 
day of Gen Con. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's sadly not an exaggeration. I think I went through. Um, I, I think I spent like eight hundred bucks. I had like eight hundred bucks in cash, and I spent all of it by lunchtime. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was bad. I have a, I have a, I have a good a first a first year I went to Gen Con was not quite that bad, but I still think I spent like five hundred dollars in the first hour. Um, yeah, no, it was the the damage for me going to Gen Con is pretty extensive. I my problem is if I see a, like a line of miniatures that I really like, um, I will wind up just buying like the line of minis. Um, I've played, I've been paint, I got in a kick of painting sci-fi, and I wanted to paint some sci-fi minis, and I'm running a a Savage World sci-fi game. Uh, I'm the next time. I'm GM next time. Okay. For my game. And so I really like the Infinity Minis, and I wound up buying um, probably half of their entire line. Jeez. And I played it. I think I played a grand total of 10 games, and I've painted like 100 figures now. <laughs> well, my, my gaming group is actually just starting to get into Infinity, and I just pick up the Pan-O starter set. So I have like six models. That's it. <laughs> now, let me ask you this. Since you've had them, dude, I, I, I'm, I'm used to you know uh, more with the Warhammer stuff with the newer plastic minis, and I haven't had to do metal in a couple of years. They're a little fiddly, those Infinity ones. They got skinny arms. You can't they even really pin them. Yeah, they do some of the some of the female figures. I mean, I've got the the Dremel tool and the, the smallest bit. I don't even try to. I don't even try to <laughs> pin those. They're just too small. No, you but, can't. You know, they actually fit together pretty well, though, so I haven't had too many issues. Um, you glue and pray. <laughs> well, I, I you know it's all about the Loctite gel super glue, man. That is <laughs> that stuff is magic. It is the best super glue out there. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, just make sure they're fitted good. Uh, I, I, I don't pin, I don't pin too many of those though. Just they're way too small. But I, I've had good luck. But then again, came around. I've only played like ten games, so I haven't had too many opportunities to drop stuff and break it yet. <laughs> there you go. So yeah, and I, like I said, I've seen you tweeting your pictures on your uh, your you know Monster Hunter forty five is your Twitter handle, and you'll be posting pictures. And every once in a while, you'll post a picture like. And here's the collection. And I swear, do you have every model for Hordes and War Machine? Because, <laughs> I, I mean, when they did the Mercenary book and all that stuff, you're like, oh, I just picked up the whole line. And I was looking at it going, man, and you paint okay. pretty fast, too. It, it, I'm, I'm actually a faster painter than I am a good painter. <laughs> Though I do I do have, like, my like when I paint something really good, I'll, put, I'll post it on Cool Mini or not. And I, I, don't use my, I don't use one of my regular handles. I don't use one of my names. Uh, or a name that I'm known by. That way, um, you get an honest review. Well, yeah, because that way I don't want fans of my books to be like, "Oh, that's a 10. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I've I've gotten sevens on there. You know, I've gotten in the seven range on Cool Mini, so I'm okay. Um, you know, because they're biased. Those guys are hardcore, man. They are. They are. Oh yeah. They are. They're harsh. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so I can get in the sevens though, and uh, no, but I I do have. Every single mercenary faction mini for War Machine, uh, and I'm about—I think I'm about forty or forty-five percent painted uh, right now. Um, Is that your faction of choice, or you just like the models? Uh, I'm a Merc player primarily. That's my main faction. But keep in mind, I don't win much. <laughs> well, like so, I said, I, I'm a troll player. I've only played a dozen games or ten games like that. I've—I've I've not won one yet. But so. My son told well, me, gonna, makes fun of me. He's like, you're just terrible, Dad. Go back to Warhammer. Well, give me an idea. Like, okay, so Wild West Exodus. I just love their sculpts. and uh, Oh, yeah. I, 
I have never played Wild West Exodus, and I own, I own, I think, uh, probably, I'm guessing probably 80, 80, 90% of what they make, including the train. I bought the $500 train. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, I'm an, I am a nerd. I've always been a geek. And for the first time in my life, I have disposable income. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hey, and you know, and that's what a hobby is. My friends always said this, and it always drove our wives nuts. But my buddy Paul always used to say, "A hobby is the thing that you spend all your extra time and money on." And that's you know, when Pretty I have much. when I have free time, I want to do this, and so when I have free time, I buy this. So I'm in the same boat. I can look over here at about three different Kickstarters worth of games that need their miniatures painted. <laughs> my Space Hulk, uh, the yeah. you know, the Dead Zone. Uh, my descent models are never getting done. That's just not happening. Oh, Kickstarter, man! It is the okay. So you, you know, you know, uh, you, you've probably heard of Brandon Sanderson, the author, right? Oh yeah. Okay, well his his brother is uh, Jordan Sanderson, and Jordo is a huge painter. Uh, loves painting, loves hobby stuff. Well, my wife refers to Jordo as my facilitator because <laughs> anytime there's a sale anywhere on the internet or there's a Kickstarter. Within 10 minutes of it going up, Jordo has notified me. Um, and so, so like, my wife, I'll be, I'll like, we'll be in bed, and I'll be, like, reading my phone or whatever, and I'm like, oh, Jordo. And my wife will go, oh, no. <laughs> she just knows. He has, like, his finger on the pulse of, of, of hobbyist stuff. And so, like, instantaneously, it's like, ooh, a Kickstarter. Let me tell Larry. And I was like, <laughs> crap, I'm in. Yeah. Well, I w- like I was going to say on the Wild West Exodus stuff, I, I wound up buying all this because I was playing in a, a Deadlands campaign, a Savage Worlds Deadlands campaign, you know? Oh, and those switch uh, over real nice. Yeah, and so I was like, well, geez, I want I kind of want to paint some cowboys anyway. Yeah. So this is a this is a great excuse. I had to go in for the union because when I saw Abe Lincoln there swinging an axe, I'm like, oh, oh I'm in. How cool is that? <laughs> <I'm in. laughs> Abe Lincoln just kicking anybody's ass is okay in my book. Well, I'm Portuguese, right? And I and I'm, I have ancestors that are conquistadors. In fact, my mercenary army for uh, War Machine is conquistador themed, and so they come out with a new faction, the Golden Army. You know, it's for uh, and it's a conquistador themed Mexican army. Nice. <laughs> I was like, oh, that just has my name written all over it. You know, <laughs> how could I not buy that? <laughs> I hear you. My friends come over and they say the same thing to me. They're like, Dave, you have a store. Like in my storage area, there's there's at least 30 or 40 boxes that aren't even opened yet of just models <laughs> I bought that I'm like, I'm going to paint this someday. And it's it's gotten to the point where if they need something that's out of print or they can't find, they'll be like, you don't happen to have one in your closet, do you? And I'm like, I might. Let me go check. And they're like, can we just buy yours? Because you're never going to paint it. I'm like, okay, here you go. Oh, so, yeah. I know I the feeling. Doing, man. I'm there. <laughs> so, but you said you do a lot of role-playing, too. What, what what RPGs do you like to play? Uh, let's see. Well, right now I've been on a Savage Worlds kick, um, but before that was uh, Legend of the Five Rings. Okay. Uh, did a, I ran a two-year L5R campaign. Uh, wow. In fact, we called it Writer Nerd Game Night because uh, almost everyone in the group was a published author. And there were seven of us all together. I was GM, had six guys. And we actually wound up writing a novel worth of um, basically game journals slash fan fiction. And we're all professionals. <laughs> that was kind of fun. And it, then uh, that's something that should get published. Like you should slap that all together. You're, you know, and that's the type of stuff that all the fans of all of you would buy just to see what you do, like with your well, game nights. 
And the funny thing is, we, it's all, we posted it all on my blog, and then we posted it all on the L5R forums, too, just for fun. That was, I think it's, I think it's actually the biggest thread uh, on the Legend of the Five Rings forum. It's over in the, uh, just kind of the fan fiction, or the, they call it the Magistrate's Journal section. I think it's the biggest thread they have there. And it was just me posting everybody's game journals for two years. Jeez. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And uh no, then we did uh an Iron Kingdoms did an Iron Kingdoms uh campaign after that. Uh that was fun. And uh and so we're switching off and then it goes back to me being GM on this next one, and I'm actually gonna do I'm gonna use Infinity setting just because I've got all the Infinities minis and it's an excuse for me to paint, you know, magical space samurai and giant robots. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody likes giant robots. I was, re- I, in fact, I just, uh, I, I read Tokyo Raider just a couple of weeks ago. Speaking of some of your books, oh, that was a fun, that was a fun one. Yeah, I enjoyed the heck out of that. I enjoyed reading that one too. Well, I'm doing a, I'm doing a trilogy, uh, a Grimoire trilogy set in the 1950s is on the, is on the list. I've got that under contract. So, um, that Tokyo Raider was kind of a preview of what I've got planned. That's going to be fun. That is going to be really fun. I'm just, I, I can't, honestly, I can't wait. I'm trying not to fanboy out here, but every time you tell me what's coming next on the book list, I'm like, oh yeah, because actually just yesterday I, I, uh, I downloaded your, um, e-arc for your new, your new, your new book oh. series. Oh, son of the black Star. Have you read that yet? I, I just downloaded it yesterday. Haven't gotten to it yet, but okay. it's like, I'm excited because. I, I'm pretty proud of that one. That one was uh, that one was uh, that was different for me. I've never done an epic fantasy before. I love that one, honestly. Um, actually, it's cool. Jim Butcher. I'm a, I'm a huge Jim Butcher fan. Talk uh, about going the, fanboy. Yeah, who isn't? Yeah, Butcher's <laughs> awesome. And uh, Butcher actually he he's read it and he's given me a he's given me a cover quote for it. He loved it. Wow, um, that, that's high praise coming from him. Oh yeah, man, I totally geeked out. <laughs> I really did because when Jim Butcher's like, "Wow, yeah, I was really impressed." I mean, I liked your other stuff, but this is like a this is like a whole new level. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, Jim Butcher likes the book." <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, and I got Larry Elmore did the cover. I mean, and Larry Elmore came out of you know book cover retirement to do the cover for this, and he loved the book. That's and you really know, I cool. grew up. Yeah. I mean, if you're if I mean, now, if I'm people want to read this because I know the book is, it comes out in like what I think September or November. But if they oh, want yeah, to... it comes out, I think street dates November third is release date. But you can uh, you can get the advanced reader copy, which is barely, basically the early, not very proofread uh, reviewer copy. It's available um, uh, from Bayon.com. If you just go Bayon.com, it's on their front page right now. You can get an advanced copy of that. Um, and what was the title again? I, I always say it wrong because I just uh, it's Son of the Black Sword. Son of the Black Sword. I keep I keep yeah, saying Son like, of the Seventh Sword because I'm kind of an idiot and I just alliterate everything. That's fine. <laughs> it's kind of a um, it's a it's 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 not a Western setting. It's kind of a conglomeration of Indian, uh, East African, and Southeast Asian kind of mushed together. Um, it's a world with like really brutal caste systems. It actually has a uh, you know centralized kind of Mandarin style government that you know meddles in everything okay. and keeps all the various factions warring against each other, and uh, it's a pretty cool setting. I, I'm pretty proud of it. Um, it came out really good, and uh, this is the first of a series. So the only complaints, it's kind of cool. The only complaints I've gotten so far are, are people who are like, oh, it's the, obviously the first book of a series. Well, yeah, there's not. <laughs> yeah, you know? oh, it's, yeah, so yes. it's, it's not complete. I want more. Well, but that doesn't that always happen? I mean, you just said it about Butcher. 
every time I finish a butcher book, I'm I'm depressed because I know I've got to wait a year. Yep. And yeah, and, and we were, you know, we're we're spread out over you know 15 books now or 14 books. Yeah. And uh, you you got a ways to go because I think he's got 20 something like like. Uh, 20 something plans. Well, he said 20. There's three. I think that he he gave us, in fact, at Gen Con, he gave us the titles of the last three. It was like, um, I know one of uh, Stars and Stones, Hell's Bells, and then um, like End of Night or Black Night or something <laughs> like that. Or, yeah, that I mean, so cool. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. You know what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take like six months and just listen to all the audiobooks in the end. Oh, and having Marsters read them. Is a really it's a great having James Marsters read him. He really gets oh, it done well. He's good. Okay, so one night uh, oh, this is kind of funny. So uh, I was actually talking to uh, Jim on uh, just texting back and forth or on Facebook. Okay, and uh, I realized sitting so while I because this is you know how surreal it is to be an author and actually hang out with these people. I'm texting Jim back and forth. He's a great guy. He's funny as heck. We're talking about something writing related, and uh, in bed next to me, my wife looks over and, and she's on her iPad and got her earpieces in and she looks at me and goes, so who are you talking to? I go, Jim Butcher. And then she shows me her iPad. She's listening to uh, Dresden Files. <laughs> and um, so I, I, I text Jim back and go, dude, while I'm talking to you, my wife is listening to your audiobooks. And, uh, and he goes, ah, it's, it's not me. It's James Marsters, man. It, you know, women can't resist him. <laughs> Uh, he, he and he, you know what he does really get that down though. It's it's uh, every time you listen to a new audio book, it's you kind of got to get used to the reader. And yeah. I, I just fell into that one really, really, really easily. He ha- he got it really down. Well, you know, and the longer a narrator does the same series, the better they get at it. It's uh, I'm I, I'm lucky. I've got um, uh, I, I've got a few different narrators, but uh, on my Monster Hunter series, it's been Oliver Wyman the whole time, and he's he's fantastic, and he's just gotten better and better at it as the series has gone. Oh yeah, and then in Grimnoir, I got Bronson Pinchot, and he has just done an amazing job. Uh, that was the first one I that was the first book I got. I got the I got the first book in Grimnoir, and I got it on at, on Audible. In fact, you're the first guy that got me buying extra credits because I wasn't oh. going to wait a month, <laughs> but. I so I listen and I, you know Bronson Pinchot. Everybody knows him from. I mean, he was in you know he was in True Romance, but then they always think of Balky. And I'm listening, going, this is Bronson Pinchot, and I was like, wow, he's amazing. In fact, it took me a little time to get ready for Oliver Wyman because I was like, this isn't Bronson Pinchot because like he had really spoiled me on your books. Oh, yeah. listening to that, they're series. both fantastic. They're, but man, Bronson, people don't realize he's a classically trained actor. I mean, the guy can do anything he is so amazing i mean we i don't know if you realize this but i've been not or i do better in audiobook than i do in regular book and i do fine in regular book but in audio um i've been nominated for five audis for best novel and won two of them i think in fact uh, uh all three grimoire novels were, were nominated for best novel and uh and we won for hard magic and we won for spellbound and it, and then bronson has been up for best actor a few times for his work on my books. And right now, Dead Six is up for Best Thriller. So, Dead Six um, was, you know, I'm, okay, we got to shift over to the book stuff here. Oh, sure. Dead Six is such a weird series. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> it very is. paramilitary. But as a guy who's a, who's loved H.P. Lovecraft since he's been 12, I'm sitting here listening, where, where is this going? Like, you've got this paramilitary <laughs> series set in this sort of pseudo weird future, not quite the what's going on now. Um, all mercenaries, really cool. If you, guys, if you like real, you know, hardcore military 
mercenary type stuff. The books are fantastic, but I'm I can't, I've been dying for part three because I'm like, where is this going? Like working I'm enjoying the ride, but I have no idea where I'm going. Yeah, that's actually me and Mike are working on that right now. The only reason it's uh, okay. So a little background for your listeners. Uh, that's one of the things that I co-write, and my co-author on that is Mike Coopery, and. Uh, to give you a little background on Mike, he's a he's a military veteran. Uh, he was an EOD guy, which means you know he's one of those bomb disposal guys. You know the Hurt Locker movies. Right. Um, he hates those movies. By the he hates that movie. By the way, but uh, <laughs> he was actually he was in Afghanistan when Dead Six came out. Um, so his first book signing was at a tiny little base by the Pakistan border. Well, we actually got him. We shipped him a case of books, and it finally got there. And uh, so his first book signing was at this fob. Was he just put out a table, sat at it, put his books on it, and just started handing them out. And so guys just started getting in line because other people were standing in line. So obviously, you know, you must stand in line. <laughs> so that yeah. was Mike's first book signing of his life was in Afghanistan. And uh, he uh, he knows his stuff, and he was a brand-new writer, Um He's, he's come a long way, and the reason the third book took is taking a while is because we actually had to take a break um, so he could go write his first solo project. Oh, nice. um, he's got a, a book called My Brother or Her Brother's Keeper, and it's coming out, I want to say, in October from uh, Bay and Books. It's a big kind of action-adventure space opera. Um, it's fantastic. I was one of the alpha readers on it, and... Uh, uh, Bayon's already given him a deal for sequels to it because they like they're they're that confident they like this first one that much. Uh, it's a really good book, but he's nice. done with that now. So we're working on the third dead third and final dead six novel is is working. We're working on that now. So wait, so you're going to bring all this to a close in one more book? Uh, yeah. Well, because originally this set out to be a trilogy, and um, and you talk about kind of the we never really it's it's basically it's a it's kind of um it is straight up it's a thriller it's a military thriller. But we do have these little elements of, you know, question mark in there. We never really fully explain. We never really get into them. Um, it is kind of an alternate history, but we don't delve into that too much. It's basically, uh, if you take all of the conspiracy theories out there, like on Coast to Coast AM, yeah, um, that's what this is. Um, this this is this weird black ops paramilitary conspiracy theory. Series. It's a lot of fun to write, actually. I write Lorenzo, he writes Valentine, so I'm writing a guy who's a, a thief and an assassin. And, uh, you know, Mike's writing a guy who's a military veteran, kind of a, went through a kind of a, a Blackwater type company, uh, which, you know, Mike and I both have experience with. And, yeah, we, uh, yeah, so we had a lot of You're Lorenzo and he's Valentine. Okay. That, yes. that makes sense, having, having read it. Yeah. <laughs> he's Valen he writes Valentine, I write Lorenzo. And, uh, so I'm more. I'm, it's funny because I was, I was working on that today, working on the third book, and uh, we're pretty excited. We're, we're really. I'm excited to get this out there in front of you guys, and uh, it's a fun series. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's really cool. I and you know what? There's it. it it's got that nice mix of action with humor because there's times I'm laughing out loud. I'm listening to these on audio, and I'm driving in my car, and people must be looking at me like I'm insane. <laughs> because I'm just driving the car and just laughing at some of these parts where they have the fights and the things going on, especially when they're getting whacked with shovels and things like that. <laughs> oh, I'm just, the shovel! <laughs> that, and you know That's what's the a best? running joke um, because that character is Portuguese and you know he's, he was a mercenary in Africa and stuff. And I actually have relatives like this guy. And um, the, the running joke uh, for me and Mike for years. I'm Portuguese. He's Finnish, but uh, the, the the martial arts weapon of the Portuguese is a shovel. <laughs> because you can just whack cows with it. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, it's a very useful tool on the farm. And so it's kind of our martial arts weapon. Yeah, I, I've killed a lot of things with a shovel in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so we had that scene and we just whack that. You know, actually, we whack Taylor with a shovel. And the funny thing is Taylor, the character of Taylor is based on a real guy. Um, we, everything that we didn't change anything about Taylor. Uh, we actually had to take him down a notch to make him a believable fictional character. Uh, okay, he so. was, uh, him and Mike were, uh, they worked in the Middle East together. Um, they were, they were over there in, uh, I want to say Qatar, uh, together for a while. And, uh, and I know Taylor really well now too. And the guy is his stud went on to be a, a SWAT team guy for NASA. I kid you not. Wow. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, he changed smoking Southern and Southerner. And the reason he quit smoking, uh, and, and this is not in the book yet, but the reason he finally quit smoking was because he took up SCA. He took up competitive sword fighting. Oh, so he needed to be get, be able to get a, breathe better. Yeah. So this is a guy who's been to war all over the world. He was a mercenary in Africa, did all this crazy adventurous stuff. Just a total bad mamma jam in real life. Been on the, there's pictures of him on the history channel, riding on the back of a tank in like, you know, uh, Sierra Leone. Okay, oh, so he finally finally stops smoking when his liege lord tells him that he would sword fight better for the kingdom. That's fantastic, actually. You know, these are real people I know, so I just stick them into books, and people think I'm making up far fetched characters. And no, they're that. That's a real guy. <laughs> I tell you, some of my favorite parts in in the Dead Six stuff is when they when they they each keep one upping each other. They keep meeting up and and and. You know, one guy's trying to do something, the other guy stops him or does something. It's the it's the talk between them, between the fights. Where he's like, "I'm I'm I'm going to get you, you." And there's it's like, "Oh yeah, come, the the smack talk between some of these baddest of the badasses is just is so fantastic in that yeah. book. It, it, that's the stuff that just really just slams it home, makes it like, "Wow, these guys are just they're angry at each other." Well. I got a lot of military readers, and uh, and one th- and I got, and uh, I try really hard to to get the one of the best thing about writing military guys is the banter and just the smack talk. Yeah, <laughs> and the tr- you know, and so you you got to try to nail that, and, you, and it's funny because I actually have to take that down a notch to to you know sell the book to regular people. <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, well- now, speaking of selling the books, I want—I I had a couple of questions about writing, if we can get to it, if you've still got time, because we've sure. sort of been doing this. But before we even get to that, now, I know you're the New York Times best-selling author, but I know you also have a, a rather uh, a, a rather um, enthusiastic fan base, your murder hobos and your monster hunters. Um, <laughs> you know, what's, it, what, what's that like? I mean, I know you've got... I mean, I've, I've actually seen on some of the social media where, like, guys, you don't have to comment on every single thing I write because I just can't ever read it all and respond to it all. <laughs> what is that like? It's a little weird. Uh, I'll be honest uh, at times. Um, no, I love my fans. Though. I've got, like, the best fans in the business. There's no doubt about that. My, my fans are amazing. And uh, they're just cool as heck. But there's times where it's just overwhelming. Um, when, when, when that many people know who you are and, or you're out to dinner with your wife. And somebody will just walk up to you. It's like, oh, hey, you're Larry Korea. I'm a huge fan. And it's like, awesome. Should I be scared? I'm just here. <laughs> hey, I don't know you. <laughs> uh, you know, and you, and you start getting um, Part of it's because I'm, I'm recognizable. I look like a big version of J- big younger version of James Gandolfini. Um, 
No, really, one of the guys that just got sprung from Gitmo, one of the terrorists they let out of uh, Guantanamo Bay earlier or uh, last year, I look like his twin brother. You posted <laughs> that picture of you next oh, to him. I've seen that, was, that. You do look like that guy. That was terrible. <laughs> it's like I look exactly like like this guy from you know Al-Qaeda. It's like you but, have trouble um, flying and stuff. <laughs> actually, I do um, a lot, but... Uh, no, it's it's funny though because I mean my fans are everywhere and I run into them all the time. But one of the weirdest was I went to the doctors one time. I had an appointment at the doctors for something, and I, I went in there, and I went up to the receptionist and I, or the guy at the reception desk, and I said, "Hey, I'm you know I'm here, um, you know I'm for an appointment." He goes, "What's your name?" I go, "My name is Larry Korea," and he stops and he looks at me, and I swear this is true. He reaches up and he grabs his computer screen, and he turns his computer screen towards me. And it's on my blog. Oh, no way. <laughs> you know, this is where actually I had a coat on. It was time, and I had some center patches in my coat pocket left over from like a con. And so without saying a word, I reached into my coat and pulled out a Monster Hunter patch and handed it to him. <laughs> That's really cool. <laughs> it was the weirdest moment. Uh, and it was, okay, that's weird, man. <laughs> that is really odd. <laughs> that was real fun uh i love and i love my fans uh i've been everywhere that i mean i've got invites to do cool things um you know pretty much anywhere i go there, there's there's somebody there that knows me it, it's kind of fun it really is cool <laughs> i did want to ask you a couple, now you are you were self-published originally weren't you i did i was yeah I, originally i was self-published this is pre-ebook revolution so it was a it was a $25 print-on-demand paperback. And that was was that Monster Hunter International? It was, yeah. yeah. Um, and one of the reasons Monster Hunter International was so gun-nutty and has so much gun stuff in it, it was because I my original market that I sold it to was uh, guys on uh, internet gun forums. Okay. So um, that's how I started out. Yeah, and uh, then it actually did really extremely well. And uh, I was offered a contract with Bay and Books, and I've been there ever since. Now, how long did that take? How long before you knew you had a pretty good, like, a hit on your hands, and then Bain recognized you? Um, I mean, I, I knew I got rejected a hundred times trying to sell it, and but I, I I had a business background, so I knew it was a pretty good book. I mean, I, I recognized there was actually a market for it. Um, I got it out there, but what really the I knew it was going to do okay, but I didn't expect it was going to do as good. But what really happened was uh, there's this big independent bookstore in Minneapolis called uh, Uncle Hugo's. Okay. And um, one of the guys that works at Un- worked at Uncle Hugo's was uh, loved some of the stuff I did online, asked to read it. I let him read it. He loved it. He passed it on to Don Bliley, the guy that owns the place. Don wound up printing off the whole thing uh, on his printer at work and read it overnight and loved it. He's actually the one that contacted Tony Weisskopf and said, you need to buy this book because I could sell the heck out of it. Nice. Um, so I always, I think most every year I try to do a book signing in Minneapolis and Uncle Hugo's uh, specifically uh, because I, I owe the beginning of my career to those guys. That's um, really cool. Yeah, it was amazing. And the reason I made a bestseller list with my self-published book was because of them. And so I, I owe them. And I, believe me, every year I, I try to go back to Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, you know, I don't blame you. Exactly. Yeah, and so that really the reason it became a hit was specifically because of this one big indie bookstore that just really pushed it and um, intru- made the introductions and and um, yeah, it's it's been going awesome ever since. That's really cool. 
That is actually really cool. So uh, you had mentioned how you you um you bring other characters like real life. Do you have other other characters and stuff? Like when you write characters, do you base a lot of them on real life people or? Uh, some yes, some no. It just kind of depends. I mean, because Z um, Z reminds me a lot of a Portuguese author. I, I I'm kind of a fan of from yeah, Monster except, except he's half Polynesian. No, <laughs> um, no. Honestly, anytime you write a character, you're going to have elements of yourself in that character. Sure. Um, actually, it's funny because uh, yeah, superficially, there's a lot of stuff I have in common with the main character, mostly because it made my life easier to write it in the first person. Um, background and whatnot, but actually, of, of any character in that book, the one I'm actually the most like personality-wise is Trip. <laughs> and uh, I can see that. Yeah, and then uh, you know, I, I so I do have some characters that are definitely based on people I know. Uh, others are kind of a conglomeration of a couple people I know stuck together. Um, yeah, as a writer, you just kind of take the inspiration wherever you can get it. Like I said, I write Lorenzo, and Lorenzo is a snarky jerk uh he one time he's described as a self-absorbed godless narcissist (laughs) i mean i am almost not i'm nothing like lorenzo but i can write the heck out of lorenzo because there are elements of my personality that are that are like him basically all all the mean sullen nasty parts of myself i i (laughs) i just put those all into lorenzo you know (laughs) there you go so uh, it just kind of depends honestly um and I have I have some that are based on friends, some that are based on family members, and some that are just made up. <laughs> so I, I guess you, you take the inspiration wherever you can get it. Now, uh, now I I have recommended the books to several of my friends. And I just want to say I've got friends like my buddy uh, Relian. That's his that's his handle. Everybody calls him that. His real name is Brad. Um, <laughs> but I remember he started reading Monster Hunter, and he's like, "Oh, I'm I'm kind of like it." And then he got to Skippy. <laughs> and he's like heavy metal loving orcs. I'm sold. This you, uh, how do you like you and Monster Hunter? I mean, if, for people who aren't, you know, that's sort of. I mean, you could tell how much you love the old Hammer horror movie. I mean, there's every monster conceivable winds up in these stories from any legend, but you really try to put a different twist on all of them. Like, you know, the orcs are really noble creatures, all with a bit of weird power. Um, where do you, where gnomes, do you, elves. Yeah. The gnomes are hysterical. <laughs> tell, go, please tell people about the gnomes if they don't know. Well, okay. So if you read, if you read actual folklore and history, gnomes in like Scandinavian gnome legends are not the cute, lovable little you know rosy-cheeked guys. They're actually they're they're mean. And what it was, the legends with the gnomes is farmers would leave out offerings to the gnomes. Um, like you would leave out porridge for your gnome, otherwise he'd make all your cows get sick, or he'd burn your barn down. And there's one uh, Swedish story where the their, the farm gnome liked to leave you know butter on top of his porridge. And one time they messed up and they put the butter in first and then put the porridge on top. So the gnome was so angry that he didn't think he got butter that he burned their farm down. And so I'm reading these old legends. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a protection racket. Gnomes <laughs> are criminals. <laughs> And so uh, when I was writing, this is in Monster Hunter Vendetta, um, I, I introduced, you know, basically gangster gnomes. And what it was is there were gnomes that came to America from uh, Norway or Sweden, and they uh, they got immersed in American culture by watching MTV, you know, watching gangster rap videos. And so their whole culture was based on these gangster rap videos. And so it's like every bad stereotype you've ever seen um, of a gangster rap thing 
the gnomes just took it to heart and embodied it. And so the scenes with the gnomes in America are hilarious. They are really funny with genome. Terrible little thugs, man. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, and then elves, where the elves come from is actually one time, uh, I have trailer park elves. Um, and, uh, they're, they're, they're basically very disappointing to anybody who grew up on Tolkien. (laughs) And so, uh, well, where that came from is actually I was writing Monster Hunter and my wife was in bed reading a book. And here, so my wife reads like a book a night. I mean, she's one of those super fast readers. Okay. And uh, she's read way more than I have. So she's reading this fantasy novel and she lets out this just exasperated sigh and puts the book down. And I ask her, well, what's wrong, hun? She goes, I'm reading this fantasy novel and elves are always the same. Why are elves always magical and special and immortal and beautiful and blah, blah, blah. Just once, I'd like to see elves be different, you know, like like redneck elves or something. And she said that, and like this light bulb went on over my head because I used to live in Alabama, and uh, <laughs> I was like, I I know rednecks. And so she said that, and I was like, oh, that's awesome. And so a couple minutes later, I was writing about the Enchanted Forest trailer park, <laughs> was... and uh, it was fantastic. And so the elves were actually the first thing that wound up in the series. And, you know, if you got elves, you got to have orcs. And it just kind of went from then. So every Monster Hunter book, I've added new um, new kind of legendary supernatural things where I've taken a different twist on them. And that, that's been a lot of fun. I had my, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to give away too many spoilers because oh, no. it's later, later in there. I mean, I've got dragons that are different. I explained why dragons hoard. That was fantastic, um, by the way. That was just... Oh, Texas bull men instead of minotaurs. Right. Just, hey, don't call them minotaurs. Do I look Greek to you? You know? <laughs> Where it's like an embodiment of all things Texas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've had some fun with that. that that's that been pretty cool. That's, that's a cool part of my job is coming up with myths and men and then messing with them. So if you had – now, I won't even bring up Frankenstein and the Wolfman. I'll just let the readers oh, yeah. go to yeah. that because – Honest. Okay, and let me say this: since since I have a chance to just talk to one of my favorite authors here, you you build up the government in Monster Hunter International. You build up the whole the, the government organization that's you know keeping everything secret. You make me hate them for four novels. You make me loathe them, and then in the fifth book, you actually have scenes where I actually started to cry. For these people that I have hated for four novels. And kudos to you for being able to flip a switch on a person like that. I don't like when people toy with my emotions that way, Larry. But you did it. And it was fantastic. I mean, it was so good. And my son's always asking me, any word on when the new Monster Hunter book's coming out? Because... He he's an, he's another rabid fan. He's devoured them all, and he's got his friends in middle school reading them. I got a call from the. What is all this Monster Hunter stuff, Mister Whitek? Hey, listen, don't worry about it. My son's reading, which is more than I could say for most of the kids. So, <laughs> but um, so if you had to give any bit of advice, like you know, like I said, I I and I teach uh, one of the classes I teach is creative writing, and my kids are always writing the same stuff. Uh, but if you were going to give any advice to someone who is, you know, an aspiring writer, you know, a bit of generic advice, what would you say, you know, to 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 keep an eye out for, or anything like this, or any sort of generic advice you could give out, just in general? Well, well, real specifically, and this is just a piece of advice that pops into my head because you just said what the with making the government guys into the heroes for once. Anytime you're writing, no matter what you're writing, you're writing it through somebody's point of view. 
whether it's third person or first person, somebody is your point of view character. Everything is going to be biased according to what that person sees and what they think and how they feel. Um, and that's how you, how I can flip a switch and have somebody be the bad guy in one part and the good guy in another part is because everybody is the hero of their own story. And so if you think of it that way, uh, and anytime you're writing dialogue, anytime you're writing, having a character do anything, just think about what would that character actually do? What, what's in it for them? What's their motivation? And when you start to differentiate your characters and make them all people, the more you can make them real people, the more that's going to come across in their interactions, the more convincing they're going to be. And the next thing you know, you, you've made your story a whole lot stronger because now your characters really matter and really have their own goals and their own perceptions. Um, so, so the more you can strengthen that and the more you can make them real, the better it'll be. Um, you know, obviously your, your little minor characters, you're not going to put nearly as much effort into, but, but anybody, anybody major, you really got to, you owe it to your reader to make them as real as you can. Uh, that's kind of how I look at it. Uh, it's, okay. So that's one little piece of advice I'll throw out there. Cool. Very cool. Um, okay. I have one last writing question and then I wanted to get to this other thing. And I'll keep this one quick though. Now you, yeah, I mean, it's you are a well-known, you know, gun enthusiast. Oh, yeah. And I didn't know that about you, but, you know, a third of the way through MHI, the first book, I knew it about you. Um, because, I mean, you can uh, – so, you know, you're, you're very specific with your weaponry, and it's very detailed. And I know as, as a writer, I know this is – the guy who's writing this isn't just – he pulled out his gun and pulled the trigger. There's very detailed – as a writer, is it important when you're writing about just about how important is it for you to make sure that you've got the details correct on these things? Like, I mean, you know, I mean, and not just for guns. I mean, for, you know, whatever it is, you know, if the guy's a smithy or a horseback rider, how important is it to get all um, that? Well, what, what I think it comes down to is you owe it to your reader or you owe it to your readers to do as much research as you can without delaying the book. And what I say that is because don't get too hung up on getting everything perfectly right because then you'll never get the actual book written. Um, but think of it this way. Uh, I try to get my gun stuff right because as a gun person, when I read something or watch a movie and they get gun stuff obviously wrong, it, it kicks me out of the story. Because what happens is, you know, I'm immersed in the world. I'm immersed in the movie. I'm immersed in this TV show. And then all of a sudden they do something just completely wrong. I am now no longer immersed. I've been kicked out. Um, and so when you're reading a book and you come across some subject that you know and the author really screwed it up, it ruins your immersion. And uh, the more commonly, you know, the more common knowledge there is about that topic, the more readers you're going to kick out. Uh, the example I like to use is, um, I mean, not everybody knows gun details, but everybody knows about cars. And it'd be like reading a book and you want to, and you're reading about how they get in the car to drive away, but they open the trunk and crawl in through the trunk and then drive away. Immediately, you would be like, "What? What? Huh?" And then all of a sudden, you're no longer in the book. You okay. got kicked out. Um, so basically, anything that you could really screw up, you know, a lot of this stuff you can just get from some very basic research. But the gun stuff and the fighting stuff is really jarring because you know if you're reading an action thing, then that's going to come up. Um, like when I did Son of the Black Sword, I had to learn a lot about swords and fighting with, you know, medieval style weaponry that I just didn't know much about. Um, because you're, if you screw that stuff up, it's going to kick readers out. You know, the, 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 the most nitpicky group of people out there is horse people. 
You think it's <laughs> yeah, you think it's bad to mess up gun stuff and you'll have the gun people get mad at you? No. If you write a fantasy thing and you get your horses wrong, the horse people will flip out on you. <laughs> so I mean do some do basically just you gotta do enough research to fake it till you make it. Um, okay. on pretty much any topic. Okay. Good advice. Now and also another thing too, just an example, um if you screw something up, but there is a reason in the world why it would be different, you can get away with it. So, for example, when I was writing Monster Hunter, I have them using an MI-24 Hind Russian helicopter. And early on in the, in the book, before I introduced, you know, who's the pilot, they do a maneuver with this helicopter that you, you can't really do with the Hind. It doesn't really hover well. It has to be moving forward. You, you know, it's not a good thing to repel out of. And okay. I have them repel out onto a ship. So this guy contact, I get this email in the morning from this guy who's a helicopter pilot. And he goes, hey, you know, you can't do that with the MI-24 Pind. Later in the day, I get an email from the same guy saying, oh, oh, you explained it. Magic Orc Pilot. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> and you know what? Magic Orc Pilot did does solve the problem, doesn't it? It does, because once you throw that in there, and just one little throwaway line about you know doing things that are seem to be impossible because he's an orc – the readers accept it so you know a lot of stuff you can get away with you just, if your you world allows it that's fantastic okay so um last little topic and then i'll let you go because i know you've been on longer than you say you've been more than generous with your time oh that's fine you um your your book Warbound, uh, i believe wasn't it last year was nominated for a hugo award uh yes that's correct and um this is how i was actually introduced to you i on twitter mike stapel just tweeted Problems with the Hugo Awards, and then there was a link, and I said, "Oh, what's this? Interesting." Click, and it took me to your website to uh, to a to a, a blog post that took me a good half hour to read. Um, and basically, um, you got yourself nominated, and your blog post generally said, "I I have absolutely no delusions that I'm going to win this thing, but I kind of want to prove a point." And it's kind of for people who don't know, it's kind of blown up into something. You know, people are making some sort of a big deal out of it. But would you like well, to talk about this a little bit, or, or at least explain what your sure. point was? Because yeah, um, okay. So uh, a few years ago, the Hugo Awards, if you're not familiar, are kind of like the Oscars for books or for fantasy and sci-fi novels. And um, uh, uh, several years ago, I first got involved in the process. I got nominated for best new author. And uh, you know, long story short, I, I came away from the process. Uh, with the impression that the, it was really biased and cliquish. Um, so basically you had like real small insular groups of, of like-minded people um, pretty much controlled the whole thing. And it wasn't like there was a conspiracy there. It was just that it was a very small number of people. You know, if you got 20 or 30 of your friends together to nominate something, you could get a nomination for something that was supposed to be the most prestigious award in all of sci-fi. And, um, you know, growing up, I read Hugo stuff, my whole, you know, the Hugo Awards were the big deal. And that's what Robert Heinlein and Arthur C. Clarke, and that's the kind of thing these guys win. Yeah. And so when I get involved and I discover that, no, not really. It's it's um, a, a few hundred people at one little con, but it, it's supposed to be the most prestigious award that represents all fandom. And, um, and so I, I was like, okay, th this is really biased. And I discovered it was really politically biased too. And if, if you, if and I, I felt that if you showed up and got a nomination, and you had the wrong politics, then people were going to campaign against you and do everything they could to sabotage you. And even with myself being a little nobody, not well known at the time, uh, new guy, 
uh, I owned a machine gun store. So that, that gives you okay. an idea of my, my politics. And I, I did military <laughs> contracting. And so uh, right away, I noticed that people were talking a lot of trash and trying to poison the well against me. And it had nothing to do with the quality of my book. And I was okay losing on the quality of my work. That was fine. Cause I was up against some really good authors. I mean, so no problem. I, I mean, I'm fine losing. But I really didn't like clickishness. And I didn't like that. So I came away, and then a few years later, I decided, you know, I bet if I could get some authors nominated uh, who have the wrong politics, um, they will blow up. Um, they will they will do everything in their power to sabotage these people. And I just kind of wanted to show the world how it really was. So a few years ago, I launched this little tongue-in-cheek campaign. It was called Sad Puppies because um, the leading cause of puppy-related sadness was, you know, boring message fit getting prestigious awards. Uh, <laughs> It was it was a takeoff of that Sarah McLaughlin late night Sarah McLaughlin uh, uh, commercial where they show all the abused dogs and then like ruin your evening and you know, send money to the animal shelter. Oh yeah, when those come on, my kids make me change the channel because my daughters yeah, will just start crying instantly if they know the commercials on. Exactly. It's horrible. So we did it as a joke. We so we, that's why it was called Sad Puppies. And so because it was, you know, I was trying to get people to combat puppy related sadness okay. by nominating fun stuff for awards. And anybody, that's the thing, anybody can get involved. All you need to do is buy a supporting membership. It's like 40 bucks, and then um, you can vote, and you can nominate. And so I put this out. Most people don't realize that. And so I put it out in front of my fans, and the first year we did it, it was just kind of a joke. And But surprisingly, we got a couple people nominations that had always been ignored. Uh, and then the next year, it was a little bit bigger. More people jumped in. A few more authors got involved. And we actually got, I think, seven different things nominated, including myself. And oh my gosh, it was the end of the world. People had a giant come up, flaming come apart about this. Um, it was all controversial, wound it up in national media. Uh, and immediately it was interesting because um, we started getting slandered as every horrible thing you could think of. Um, yeah, I which, remember reading you, you yourself are a, a misogynistic. Uh, white supremacist, racist, yeah, rape apologist. I was like, oh, my God. Which is really funny. Consider, I mean, the the white supremacist part came as a shock to my dad. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not exactly, you know, well, never mind. I don't want to make it too personal, but it's like, what? And um, so as this goes on, and that was that was that year. But what happened there was there the clicks reaction was so was so awful and vehement and obviously crap that um the next year this year we did it and oh my gosh we got a huge turnout and so when the nominations were announced we uh we had so last year i had i think seven and it was it was the end of the world this year we had like 50 and um their reaction was terrible because what happened is within uh, uh the first you know the monday after the awards were announced they had, um, I believe, it was eight national media and blog, big entertainment blog things, all ran articles about how this was a racist, sexist, anti-diversity slate. Um, yeah, Entertainment Weekly posted that, and they had to change. They had to take out the entire first paragraph and the 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 thing because I mean, it literally said, "What was it? Homophobia and racism yeah, infected Hugo's." And the funny thing is, they provided a link to our slate, and on our slate. Because Brad Torgerson actually ran it this year, and what it was is he his goal was not necessarily people with the wrong politics, it was just outsiders. So, because you know, I proved my point last year, but if you look at our slate, the people we ran were 
all over the board. And we didn't pay any attention to sex or sexual orientation or race. We didn't care. It was just because is your you had story- women and people, yeah. uh, as they call them, people of color. Uh, yeah, as they you know, uh, on there. Um, and I, that's I mean, it, when I read that article, I was just like shocked because I'm like, I saw the I saw the the list of people who got nominated. I know because if you look at our actual nominations, it was like this is all racist and sex. But if you look at the nominations, it turns out that we were way more diverse <laughs> than most of the previous winners and most of the previous nominees. I mean, because we didn't care. We, we, and it wasn't even until actually they started throwing all this crazy allegations that I actually went through and wound up asking a bunch of people what they were because <laughs> I didn't know. And, um, you know, we it had it. All that stuff had nothing to do about it. It's just a smoke screen. Basically, what it is, is it's it's insiders versus outsiders. And we're the outsiders. We're the wrong fans. We're the bad guys. We're the barbarians. And um, the murder. You know, it, it, yeah, we're. <laughs> It's the mean girls versus the nerds. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, they don't they don't like us, and they're very upset, and so they're throwing a bunch of stuff at us. And you know, the thing is, I wound up with some people on my side who have some unsavory opinions. But here's the thing: anytime you're going to have a like a basically a cultural movement of with thousands of people involved, you're going to have some jerks that say unpleasant things. Yep, um, that's just the nature of of humanity especially when you have it divided into basically two sides. Right. So, yeah, that's that's it, it's gotten national media attention. Uh it's kind of blown up really huge. Um If people are interested in 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 seeing the nominations for the Hugos and reading them, what's what is what's the Hugos website? I'm certain you know it off the top of your head. Um it's or... it's actually it, you need to look for Sasquan because it's in different it's a different place every year and this okay. time it's in Tacoma, Washington. So the con is actually called Sasquan, S A S Q U A N. Okay. Um if you just Google search Sasquan, you can find it. If you want to, if you want to register to vote and nominate next year, you still can. And it's actually kind of cool uh, because it's forty bucks, but you get a packet with um, uh, with the nominees in it, all the nominated works. So you you do get a bunch of books, and because sad puppies, we got a bunch of really good books in there. <laughs> so for forty bucks, you you, you do get a a, a a metric ton of reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is which is really just a nice perk. Um, and and then, like I said, this year it's got a bunch of good stuff. And I'm re- actually the, it, what I would invite people to do is don't take my word for it. Um, don't take any any one person's word for anything. Read the actual works and judge for yourself. Um, uh, we we basically just put up people who would normally be shunned or ignored or campaigned against, and. Uh, you know, we've actually had a, a, several people have dropped out because of the politics of it after getting nominations because they didn't, you know, they didn't. There, there was a lot of nasty things flying back and forth. It's been really awful. Um, uh, I, I won't talk about personal stuff, but I've been called right. everything you can think of. Um, and I'm not even on the ballot. I took myself off, <laughs> you know. And uh, all I can say is I would invite people if they want to join and they want to participate in this process my goal is to have so many people involved with this that it really, truly is the most prestigious award in sci-fi um, that represents all of fandom. I, I would like so many people involved that basically my people, my sad puppies, that we're, we're obsolete. We're irrelevant because there's, there's not that many of us. There you go. And you did say that, and I just want to throw this out there. And I'm like I said, I'm not trying to take sides or be political or anything like that with this. Um, but you did say that 
you know, you're not accepting the nomination because this isn't about you trying to get on a ballot. This is about you getting other authors out there and getting getting well, you know, books that deserve a nomination on the ballot. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, so I, I actually did get a nomination this year and I turned it down so. um, specifically because I, I I didn't want him to make it about me. And, and this is one thing I, I, I my, my biggest disappointment this time is has been so personal and uh, so when I was talking with George Martin, we were going back and forth about it, arguing because George Martin is, you know, part of the the cool kids crowd, and obviously he's the most successful author in the world right now. Yeah. And uh, we're we're going back and forth, and we're debating this, and he specifically asked me about my personal experiences, uh, and I shared my personal experiences, and I shared my feelings. Oh, what a mistake that was! Because ever since then, I have just been like, you guys said, in a 10,000 word blog post, which is a giant blog post, I had two paragraphs, two paragraphs out, out of like 100 where I talked about my personal feelings. And because of that, they've tried to make, because yeah, I'm human <laughs> and I have feelings. Yep. And now it's poor Larry. Larry didn't yeah. have, yeah. You know, it's I'm, like really, yeah, that okay. has pretty much nothing to do with it. Um, but. That's that's the narrative. Basically, it's the same thing as as making it about racism. It's anything they can do to dismiss um, the fact that the system was broken, the system was flawed, and the system was biased. And anything they can do to change the subject off of that, by golly, they're going to do it. So, every, pretty much, that's just, everything else is a smokescreen. But I don't know. It's been interesting, and and all I could do is basically expose it and let let people decide for themselves. That's really all I could do. Well, you know, you really actually got me. I mean, I went in and looked up and got my little, you know, my my voting thing in there and all that stuff, uh, which I never knew I could do. In fact, like I said, I mean, my knowledge of the Hugos before all of this was I remember the first time I read Ender's Game. It said Hugo Award winning book on the on the cover i was like oh that's that's kind of awesome look he won the hugo you know i didn't know much other than that that it was this you know this huge award and so after reading that it's like oh i could actually be a part of the voting process that's kind of awesome because there's not too many awards that just open it up to anyone who's willing to buy their buy themselves a membership so yeah and that was the thing is basically it's a popularity contest and and most people most people in fandom just didn't know yeah um and so we actually they have a record number of uh, nominators and they have a record number of voters this year. Um, since since all this controversy is broken, several thousand more people have registered uh, to to vote. So That's really cool. Good. <laughs> yeah. So I and in fact I even noticed. In fact, I, I saw a lot of people saying you know because you nominate like I guess what there's five nom five nominees per category and you nominated exactly five people. And oh. so now you've you've. I, you know, I'm thinking. Well, you know, so what? So what if they nominate seven or eight? Say, okay, so now we nominated more than that. So you could pick from a, well, a big list. What's part know? of the thing is they're trying to find some reason to make it bad, and we played by the rules. But but what it is, they're saying we slate voted because we put up. You know, we we swept some whole categories, and we so which means we bumped our nominees bumped out everybody else. But here's the thing: last year um, when I got like like I said about you know one person in each category. They were still mad and they were still upset because we were outsiders and we were uncouth and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, all that stuff. And, and, you know, they slandered us and called me a wife beater and (laughs) all this stuff. And so we did that last year. We didn't have that problem. We only had one person in each category and they still were mad. This time, because we had more people participating, we did all this in public and we, we solicited ideas from people on our blogs and people suggested works for us. And in fact, we only had, I think, five um, out of like the 16 categories, I think we had four categories where we actually had five nominees. Um, and keep in mind, 
going off of prayers, we did not realize the turnout we were going to have. Um, I didn't think we were going to knock everybody else out. I, I didn't see that coming. That surprised me. Um, so yeah. And when we, so when we had five it was because we honestly had five works we thought were really good. Um, we, we thought that we, we, you know, these are good worthy work. For example, for best novel, we put up Jim Butcher. Jim Butcher has been ignored by the Hugos. Um, he's one of the best authors and one of the most popular authors alive. And he's been ignored. Uh, we put up he's Kevin got like two dozen books and I haven't read a bad one by him. I mean, yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. Um, he's been ignored for decades now. We put up Kevin J. Anderson. This is Kevin J. Anderson's 125th book. Um, so, you know, when George Martin was telling me, he's like, oh, well, you guys just haven't served your time. You guys have ignored Kevin J. Anderson for, you know, close to 40 years. Yeah, no kidding. And, uh, you know, he's one of the most prolific and successful authors in the world. And we got him a nomination. Um, you know, it, it's, so it's things like that. And um, so, so he's written 125 books. Has he not served his time? Does he need to write another 100 books before you guys will pay attention to him? And, um, you know... And so, yeah, in that category, we had five. And I think in short fiction, we had five. Uh, part of the problem is there was, another, there was another slate called Rabid Puppies, which was put on by a guy named Vox Day. And, yeah, we're, we're allied, I guess, in the, in the sense that we're, you know, fighting against the same people. But he oh, did his own thing. Be careful what you say because you don't want that snippet to be pulled out. And then they're oh, gonna... <laughs> gosh, I know. Yeah, basically, basically these people have combed through everything I have ever said in my life looking for bad things they can write about me. Um. <laughs> Which is funny since I, I, you know, write for a living. There's a lot of stuff to choose from. Um, but yeah, so no, we wound up on the same side of this fight with a guy who said some controversial things. And his people turned out and voted too. And now they want me to like disown him or say bad. I can't disown what I don't own. And they want me to attack him and slander him and fight with him. But it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, there's thousands of people willing to fight with him. And there's only a handful of us willing to fight with you guys. So I'm going <laughs> to keep fighting you guys. And, uh, you know. Maybe when this is over, I can fight with him. But right now, I'm fighting you guys. So I'm not going to stop to go fight somebody else. So yeah, he said he said some bad things. But I, I don't speak for him. I don't agree with him. And I don't control him. And here's a kicker, too. His fans are fans, too. And they paid their 40 bucks. Their vote is the same as anybody else's vote. I mean, are you a fan? Then you're a fan. Exactly. Um, and there's no, there shouldn't be a litmus test over who is a real fan and who is not. Um, I mean, genre fiction belongs to whoever wants to read it and write it. Uh, You you can't just declare that you're the cool kids club and no one else can participate. And we've seen a lot of that. And it's kind of funny because a lot of the things I I, I said about this process have been proven to be true beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, I said there'd be slander. I said there'd be sabotage. We've seen it. Um, I said before that it was just, you know, belonged to one small clique of people, one small slice of fandom. And I was called a liar. It was told it belonged to everybody. And now, you know, for the first time ever in the last month, we've got all these big VIP people saying, oh, no, it belongs to Worldcon. It just belongs to fandom. It just belongs to this little piece. Well, you know, if you guys had said that a few years ago, then we wouldn't have this problem now. Exactly. Um, so, you know, and and – and things, it's interesting, too, because some of these insiders knew before the nominations came out, because I said it was biased, and I said usually you could predict who was going to win just based upon, you know, who the cool kids were before anybody had read the books. You know, we have people involved with this who, a week before the nominations were announced, knew exactly how many nominees, sad puppies, had gotten into the categories. 
And I don't think it was leaked to them. I think it's just that they knew who was supposed to have gotten on. And so when those people didn't get on, they knew and it's because they knew exactly who was supposed to when the expected people didn't get on there, then, you know, they just they, they, they knew it was us. I mean, that's how clickish and insular this was, that they could predict in advance exactly who to talk to of who was supposed to have gotten the nominations. Wow. <laughs> and that's a pretty good indicator that there's trouble. And that was all in public, too. Yeah, but, uh, I've, I've been reading, like I said, that's that's all up and down both my Twitter feeds and the blog feeds. I see it all. And it's 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 kind of amazing when you point it out, whether whether people think it's a problem or not, whether people think you personally are blowing things out of proportion or not. I mean, because I've read Martin's stuff and I know he thinks that you're just sort of making a bigger deal than there is. And, you know, it's you know. Whether you think it's a problem or not, it's it's all right there that there's there's just a lot of anger and a lot of people who are upset that you guys, you know, got a lot of people to come out and vote for books. It's just it's a it's a weird thing. It's kind of fascinating to watch as it as it sort of explodes, you know. Yeah, it's it's been really interesting in a lot of ways. I mean, my, the way I look at it is it's supposed to be a democratic process. Then let's get more people involved in it. Yeah. And apparently that's like the worst thing ever. And he gets labeled as like anti-diversity, hate mongering. It's like, wow. Yeah. All I can say is look at my, look at my nominees. Well, it's really funny. So last year I was getting tarred as, uh, you know, before any of my evil slate voting, um, when I only got a handful of people nominated, I actually pushed two books for best novel. Uh, one made it, the other did not. The novel that did not make it, was um, A Few Good Men by Sarah Hoyt. And the reason I nominated it, it was a fantastic book. It was just a really good, awesome sci-fi novel. I loved it. That was fantastic. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Sarah Hoyt is uh, uh, an, an immigrant woman, and her main protagonist character hero in this novel is a gay man. Um, that had no bearing on the fact that it was just an awesome book. I loved the book, and it was good character too. It was a well-written book. That was my nominee for best novel. And it didn't make the cut. I think it came in like sixth, sixth or maybe seventh in the final ballot for the five. So, you know, there wasn't as many of us then. So it didn't make the cut. And immediately I started getting attacked of being a homophobe. And I'm like, or a sexist and a homophobe. So it's like, why did I, if I'm such a sexist and homophobe, why am I pushing novels about gay people written by women? I mean, the narrative doesn't even make sense. No. And it's that, it's just, it's just really frustrating. So I'm getting contacted for weeks now by, by, by fans who are like, oh my gosh, I've read all your books. I love you. But now I saw in Entertainment Weekly that you're a horrible person. Well, yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, 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 and it's, it's crazy. It's really bizarre. Like you said, it's fascinating to watch this as a complete outsider, just a guy sitting in his basement watching a guy who I've, I've read and I've read the stuff on your blog. And I, and I, you know, I mean, I don't know you. I've only met you that one weekend at Gen Con, but I mean, you know how it is in fans. I mean, we read your blog, we read your books, we feel like we know you a bit. Yeah. To see people come up. I mean, just, I, I forget one of the ladies who really hates you wrote something, and I, I followed a link. <laughs> that doesn't narrow it down, sadly. Oh, I know. Not at all. But it, it, she's uh, she wrote how she's not going to MC at the awards because she can't be a part of the Hugos because of what you did. Oh, yeah. yeah. And people were going on about how you and Torgerson are racists. And people said, you know, he's married to a black woman 
and they have a child together. They've been married 20 years. And just the response is like, well, of course he did because he wanted to have a, a black woman that he could subjugate. Like, I mean, it's just like it, it made him more of a racist being married okay. to a black woman. I was like, okay. oh, my. <laughs> what? You guys, Annie has a Ph.D. And and anybody who knows the Torgersons knows that she is the boss of that family. Oh, and here, oh, that's she the other is, thing. Someone, she is awesome. She someone is mentioned the way PhD. tougher than Brad. <laughs> and here's the thing that got me so angry. I had to stop reading that that blog. I hate to. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but oh, no, someone mentioned she had a PhD, and this this lady who responded, and it wasn't the lady who wrote the article. Some one of the people following her said, "Well, so do lots of people, like Dr. Mangala." And, I mean, like, like naming, like, what good is her doctorate? What is? Why does that make her special? And she, they started naming all these horrible, like, you know, you know, like, seriously, I was like, Doctor Mangala, and then people were like, are you, you know? And then I was like, okay, I have to start reading because these people have gone crazy. Like, I mean, they were just, I was just, I was frightened by that. I was like, oh, there's no good thing. So, but. I just thought you'd like to hear that because they – so what that she has a doctorate? That doesn't make her special. Anybody can get a doctorate. So it's like, you know, it's – there's no such thing as sauce for the goose with, with this with – this, what's yeah, going on there. Yeah, the idea of – anybody who's ever met these people and the idea of her being subjugated, we just laugh because it's like, oh, no, this, this woman is tough and smart and awesome. <laughs> yeah. She, she was so. cool as heck. I mean, Brad is actually Brad's a warrant officer. He's a chief warrant officer in the army, and he's actually going to the Middle East here pretty soon. So the joke is that uh, the Sad Puppies has been so controversial that he's going to the, he's deploying to the Middle East to get some peace and quiet. <laughs> <laughs> well, geez. Oh, so okay. <laughs> well, Larry, I have kept you way longer than I promised, and I really appreciate your your kindness and staying on with me. And I know you've got like dinner and the kids and stuff, so I am going to let you go. And thanks so much. But before I let you go, one last real short thing: I just got an email, and I figured I'd let you know. Uh, Greenbrier Games new fantasy resin collection launching tomorrow on Kickstarter. Oh. I, I just forwarded you the email because these <laughs> models look really awesome. Oh man, that's. That's just what I need. There's this one stitched together guy that looks sort of like Sloth from from the Goonies, and there's a vampire uh, oh. guy and a and a, a paladin with a crossbow. This looks pretty good, so I forwarded Man. you that. I just got it. I figured, why not join I the just, club? I, I spent two hundred dollars at IKEA this week to buy more shelves for minis. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, once again, you know, just thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for coming on. And, and talking with uh, talking with my audience about your books and about writing and about the things that are going on, and um, and just about gaming. I mean, it was we sort of touched everything. It was just kind of really cool to let the audience meet you. So, well, thanks, Dave. Thanks, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And thanks for coming on it, folks. Um, we'll be back in about a week with the regular Garage Hammer episodes. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Garage Gamer. And thanks for listening. Let's do the yaya's now. I'm-